Welcome back, everybody. Tonight, tonight, tonight is Australia Day, and we have a Pommy in the house. Woo! <laughs> and we're going to interview Henry. Say hello. Use those dulcet tones. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to start talking about music first. Yeah. Music and the power of music. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about it. Sure. Well, I um, work in the music industry. I work in classical music. My my role is to help different ensembles tour around the world. It's very exciting. That could be anything from orchestras to choirs to taiko Japanese drummers dressed in loincloths. Wow. Um, <laughs> virtual reality projects. And what's amazing about my job is I get to see the power of music. Quite literally how art can make a huge difference to people's lives. When you bring something amazing from the other side of the world to someone such as this, Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and watch the crowd, watch the audience. And watch the crowd, watch the reaction, the reaction afterwards and how people have like a visceral response to it. It's, um, mm. It can be very emotional. And, and to know that the hard work that was put in to make that happen, it was definitely worthwhile. Well, why don't, when we're talking music, why don't we just go back a few steps? Sure. Or like in your life, because we met because of music. Mm-hmm. Um, with the a cappella group, all the King's Men, that Henry started. Big shout out to those boys. Big, big shout out. Um, and you studied music? Yes. Well, going even further back, I a seminal moment in my life was when I... Um, well, firstly, I got a drum kit. That was my best Christmas present ever and still oh. has and always will be. Are you like that kid on Love Actually? No, I was a lot better than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... And well, I wasn't. I wasn't learning the drum kit for a girl. I was. Oh. I was learning the drum kit for rock and roll. So, oh you know. right, right. Because you're rock and roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so me and my dad would play in the garage. Yeah. We'd, we'd rock out, which was great fun. And then I got a music scholarship to go to this amazing school, and that was. I remember when I got that scholarship, my parents told me. I remember I cried. Yeah, yeah. Because it was just the opportunities that I was given um, when I attended that school, Shrewsbury School, and John Moore, the director of music, has. Mm influenced my life from then onwards and so and you got the scholarship from your drumming yeah really wow i didn't Um, even know that and i never would have been able to have gone to a school like that if it wasn't for that and do you do drumming now not so much (laughs) unfortunately (laughs) and what okay so take me through what you learned at the school well so i started drumming when i was about eight and then um that was my main thing and then did well, I was sort of jack of all trades, master of nothing, piano and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But that was taken away with, you know, orchestra, big bands, choirs. Um, I went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival when I was 13. Mm. Um, we did Into the Woods, Stephen Sondheim was in the band for that. Uh, I had my first pint when I was 14 at the Edinburgh Fringe. <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing in the in the band? Playing drums? Playing drums. Playing drums. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and so I was playing in the bands with these different musicals. Okay. And, but it was just like the social aspects of me. I was hanging out with like 18 year olds. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, well, it was good fun. Edinburgh Fringe, I mean, what a... I mean, it's such an inspirational place to be and to have been there at that age. Yeah. Wow, that... A lot of things add up for me now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I was a lot older the first time I went to the Fringe, but it's, it's got that, it's got something about it, hasn't it? Yeah, it's the biggest arts festival in the world. Yeah, and absolutely. And you've got 
yeah. everything from an arts perspective, but all sorts mm. of people. Mm. But yet, people who work in the arts who you know can be quite weird and extrovert and yeah. know, quirky people, mm. and the, but also people that attend tourists and from all around the world, sort of varying degrees of affluence, colour, you know, all sorts of things, and it was amazing. Oh, so tell me the best moment you've had in music. The best moment I had in music. Best moment. <laughs> well, I'm quite competitive. Yeah. <laughs> really? So, uh, <laughs> competitions. You know, we did, so with all the Kingsmen, ah. we did some great competitions. Um, yes. The, so we, what are they called again? The, the, there was, well, there's, well, Pitch Perfect, um, mm-hmm. the, the, the films there, they're based off, modeled off this real life competition called the ICCAs, mm-hmm. the International Championship of mm-hmm. collegiate a cappella mm-hmm. and uh, so we competed in like the UK equivalent and we were fortunate to win that and then mm-hmm. we went to New York and just the again the opportunities which music has afforded to me has been mm. amazing allowing me to travel the world and it's been fantastic yeah and so that you think winning the competition or coming you came second then right in, yeah in New York uh, well second we, we came we came third but we're third. The, the, we say we were the best male group that's right. <laughs> true. That's true. But I suppose, no, sorry, it's less the competitions, it's more the opportunities of the forwarder to travel. And that's yeah. been fantastic. Um, you know, say even starting with the Edinburgh Fringe Festival mm. um, to, I remember my first international tour with school was we got a 24-hour bus ride to Prague. Mm-hmm. And, the, and I got the opportunity to direct the big band. Yeah. Um, yeah, both based in Europe with Kings. Um Thanks to your host on this mm-hmm. show, we managed to go to America, and that was actually those were I would say the best moments. That, I, that first tour to America with the group was fantastic. So, if somebody's listening, if someone somebody's listening to this, they think it's just seemed so easy for you. You know what I mean? It seems like okay, you got a drum kit, you got really good at it, you got a scholarship, and went to a great school, and then got to do all these amazing things, bang, 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 and you've got a career in it. It looks like it's you know, slam dunk, you won lotto, <laughs> you know, like life just turned out fantastic. But what I know that the listeners don't know is the Henry behind that, the work you put in behind that, the work you put into, well, I saw it on the acapella side with the group, but I'm sure, you know, in school and fringe festival mm. and all the rest of it. Talk to me a bit about the drive and where that comes from and and how you yeah and the drive and the hunger I suppose I think you would have had to have both to like because you 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 come across very relaxed and it was you know it's a bit of fun I'll try this but really you're not you are but you're not (laughs) anyone who's been your acapella group would agree with me Fair play. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about that. Uh, maybe it goes back to that um, uh, that that scholarship. That you know that, that was a seminal moment when I was thirteen and be able to go to that school because I suppose I appreciated how fortunate I was. Yes. And so that was probably where the drive is from. But, um, but so you didn't um, you didn't take it as like oh absolutely i'm i'm the best and i should have this and here i am you lot you took it as this is a privilege for me i've this is something i'm very lucky to have 
and I'm going to make the most of it because I realize it's an opportunity not everybody gets. Yeah. Exactly. So that's an attitude, you yeah. know, and I think, you know, the more people take anything that comes their way, that they, the more people realize when they're getting a benefit mm. and that other people might not get. Yeah. And then they make the most out of that, the better off they'll be. Yeah. But it seems a lot of people have expectations or feel entitled to have that. Mm. You know, it's a bit like, well... I mean, yeah, it, it's, it, don't get me wrong. I was, I've been extremely privileged with my education and it's not like a Billy Elliot moment or anything like that. But it was... Um, I still no. recognise that it's a very lucky. Um, mm. But what yeah. I'm saying is that you're not... You never took it as it was you were entitled to have it. You yeah. know what I mean? You took it as, hit. I've been given an opportunity. Mm. Yeah. I suppose it was always, it wasn't always a, a foregone conclusion I would get going to music. Yeah. I remember when I was leaving school, mm. I even flirted with the idea of doing a philosophy degree, <laughs> which would have been horrendous. <laughs> And every, it was it was almost because everybody else thought, yeah, Yo, you're going to do music. Oh, you want to do you want to I go always, against what I, everyone else thought? Well, I just thought I didn't want that to be a foregone conclusion. But then when I came to my own mind that obviously it's the thing I was going to do because also it doesn't necessarily mean. I suppose by doing a music degree, for example, yeah, that pigeonholes you to a certain extent, and that oh, you're not going to be a banker. You're not going to. There's a certain level of yeah affluence and a lifestyle which you are choosing at that point particularly then going into classical yeah. music is um but there's yeah. also a lot of people who would say doing a music degree especially well they say it doing a general arts degree that that's not gonna you're not gonna get a job or you know like a lot of people put those degrees down yeah because they think it's not of of use but yeah but then what's something which i think is amazing at the moment which so this is maybe a slight tangent. Mm. The CBSO, the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, mm-hmm. are um, launching their own school. Ah. And every student, I believe, will have one-to-one music tuition. And that's to be able to demonstrate um, that the value that music can bring. Yes. Because that's something which I'm very passionate about as mm-hmm. well, mm. is that it has immeasurable impacts, not only academically. Mm. So there's, there is... Um, there is uh, measurable data which demonstrates that it can have a positive influence on a mass, for example, but mm. also as a society, if we are mm. more exposed to culture, if it's seen as a less scary thing, um, mm. everybody has taste. Well, and I think we can do it more to nurture that taste as well. Exactly. And, and what we experienced tonight down at the Opera House when they sang We Are Australian, what can bring people together yeah. and galvanise people more than music in a way not many things definitely but not all arts traditions as well all arts like, absolutely I've, a lot of people say when I say I, mm. I'm working in the music industry mm. they'll go oh yeah I used to play the trumpet and then mm. and they say it's one of my biggest regrets that I stopped playing on the on the academic side um, I know that we, I think you know some universities even had a double degree in music and uh, science or music and medicine right, right? That, because okay. they see the correlation with the way you know people's minds work mm. that are smart enough to get into those medical science sort of degrees yeah. 
um, and, and music. Mm. And explain that a little bit more, you know. Um, well, I mean, an example, so my, my sister and brother-in-law are mm-hmm. both doctors. Yeah. And they're both very accomplished musicians. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's, it's funny, a lot of their uh, colleagues are also musicians as well. Mm. It's also quite sickening how they can be, you know, so, <laughs> <laughs> such talented musicians and also, uh, you know, very credible in their fields and doctors. Mm. But there is some, there is definitely um, uh, a connection between the two. Mm. And what this, say, this school, for example, is trying to, is trying to do is trying to demonstrate, like, get more tangible, measurable data, mm-hmm. which demonstrates the benefit which music can bring. Because, unfortunately, it's not seen as being enough simply by having social benefits or by making people feel mm. immeasurably better that's not good enough and I'm frankly I think it is yeah I but, think it uh, is <laughs> I'm but, sure a lot of people think it is but I suppose yeah for for governments with legislation mm. core funding goes to core subjects such yeah, as of course, of course. English, but um, there are wider benefits as, um, mm. to that, that sounds amazing that sounds really interesting I think it's a fantastic initiative and hopefully in 10 years yeah. time they can very clearly demonstrate the, the benefit that it brings. So let's go controversial here. Let's talk... Today we were talking a little bit about music over time. And mm-hmm. I was asking you the question. I was saying the 60s had a real sense. Everybody knows of the 60s, the Beatles, and you know, mm-hmm. everyone knows about the 60s, right? And the dress and the fashion, and fashion tends to go with the music. In the 70s, I mean, obviously, 70s, anyone can tell you what the 70s were like. Mm. They'll tell you it was disco, they'll tell you it was flares, you know, like, you know, John Travolta and Saturday Night Fever. 80s, same, everyone knows what the 80s is, although I've been to plenty of 80s parties at universities. I didn't really know what the 80s (laughs) is. Yeah, I'm like, no, we didn't wear that much fluoro. It wasn't all just, (laughs) But but anyhow, everyone knows the 80s. Um, and the 90s grunge, you know, Nirvana. And, and, you know, what's quite fascinating going through all these is when you're in the 90s, they'd always paid out on the 80s, and I think the 80s paid out on the 70s or whatever, you know. But then when you go to the the noughties, do we call them <laughs> the noughties, how do we define that musically? We, You and I couldn't define mm. that musically. Mm. And the 10s... I said, but I suppose what, what I said at the time is yeah. also that maybe you need that opportunity of that distance and that reflection. So yeah. maybe in 20 years' time, we'll be able to more clearly define what that was. But I don't think you do. I disagree with that. And the reason <clears> I disagree with that is because I absolutely knew what the 70s music was like from mid-80s. You know, and I think, I think even if we can't define the 10s, we should at least be able to define the, the noughties. Or know what the... <clears throat> But it Seminal didn't, music moments were. Nothing sort of stood out as, you know. It's, I mean, yeah, like nothing, like if, you are, if we ask anyone this question, they're not going to give us a definitive answer, mm. which you would for the other sort of generations. I suppose uh, the other The like, other decades. Yeah. The other decades. Mm. I suppose it's maybe thinking of also different moments in musical history, so like... Live Aid, for example, is one of the, one of those big ones. Yeah. I would I would say actually Stormzy's performance at Glastonbury a couple mm. of years ago that will be remembered as one of those mm. key moments. Yeah. Maybe because I mean we were talking earlier about uh, political songs or songs which 
resonate yeah. with this time, like London Calling, for example. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, and all, you know, I love you two songs, and yeah. Yeah, and those things and don't, aren't necessarily not, around anymore, but Stormzy, I no. suppose, is doing that. I would say, what yeah. that is, but yeah. one of so many. Yeah. But also, we are in a time where, well, the noughties went through the X Factor, Pop Idol, Britain's Got Talent, yes. heroes of churning yeah. out individuals and having a short shelf life and not building a career. Yes. Like Dolly Parton was, um, there's a documentary about her wrestle recently, and oh. about the value of building a career. Yeah. And having that longevity, which then allows an artist not just mm. to think of the, the short term success, well, but think of the long term. So they can take risks and do exactly. more you know, prominent things. I think what you're saying is right. I think that's a very good point. You know, that's like American Idol and that that sort of defines it in a way that those and it's a short shelf life because it's more about making money in the show. Mm. And maybe looking to the noughties, we might have said it's got these pop idols type things. Yeah. The tenders more, once it's still got some pop of those shows, idols. Yeah. it's more of the, we've got an abundance of available music. You look so, at Spotify, anyone can put their music yeah. up and anyone can put anything on YouTube. And The fragmentation have, of the whole sector. Yeah. Well, Do you um, think anyone can sing? Yes, just not everyone can sing well. <laughs> Everybody can sing. I've always thought that I I would have been a great singer, but yeah. I can't sing. <laughs> or, you know, sing. like I, I've always thought, oh, I should have been able to be a singer. Like I've, I've probably got a great voice. Yeah. Because <laughs> I've got a, a loud voice or, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know yeah. what it is. I'm a no, good talker. I'm a loud voice. No, I'm a good talker. <laughs> but I can't breathe when I swim. So, you know, I, I'm not sure if I can breathe when I sing. Depends if your head's on the water. Exactly. But a lot of, you know, I've got friends who, who sing and, you know, a lot of people use it almost almost as therapy. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you definitely. know, almost as therapy. It's a release and, yeah, and also there's a great fulfilment if you are able to, as a group, say, do a, do a concert together. Mm. And you go through the same emotions of the preparation and, mm. um, and the fulfilment of being able to, to actually deliver it and, mm. and the enjoyment of of doing it and also receiving the audience reaction and um, yeah you know that's quite a galvanizing experience yeah it would be and is it it's interesting for me I'd love to because you don't really play group sport do you no I do yeah, running on my own running on your own <laughs> but it does make me wonder I'd love to know if people think it's very similar to like I mean I used to play soccer when I was younger but you know like I'm, I'm, I'm talking about people who play you know, sort of rep level or representative level and mm. play. I'd love to know if it's the same. I'd sort say of so. Yeah, so like, I, yeah, I think yeah. it would be. Yeah, I think it would be because there's a lot of people who think oh, I'm not a sports person, and they don't then get in any other group mm. type thing. Mm. But mm. music could be a way to help them. However, you know, yeah. well, I even think of. Uh... Think of you know, there's lots when it comes to the big major tournaments with sports teams, and they have mm. different sports psych psychologists and trying yeah. to get them prepared in the best way. But something which every national team does before they perform, before they play, rather, is sing. Yes, yeah, and that's, that's a extremely a bonding, point. bonding moment. But even, even the most rugged football fan will be chanting. Yeah, that's well. This is what we were actually saying that we think England doesn't have much luck in Eurovision. We were saying they should get the. The England um, football supporters. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Get a group of them to go that'll over. Be very, that'd be very divisive. <laughs> <then. laughs> we would get even fewer votes than we already did. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be interesting. 
Actually, let's talk about um, because because of music, you've been able to travel to a lot of places. Yeah. But also, um, you took a job where you you moved to Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Talk about t- talk to me about living overseas in somewhere like Hong Kong. Yeah. Well, my first experience working abroad was in Bangkok. That's my mm-hmm. gap year. Um, so I was How long working, were you there for? I was there for seven months. Okay. That's I did, good. did two yeah. terms. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, my first sort of term of my gap year was doing the normal thing. Everyone else had odd jobs, offices and uh, waiting and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And then, yeah, so it's an amazing experience. They flew you over. You had your own apartment in Bangkok. Mm. Um, I was 19 years old. I had a maid. Wow. They came <laughs> once a week. It was yeah. a very surreal experience. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, you had the term time and I was teaching uh, music and supporting just a supporting staff role, or mm-hmm. playing in the staff rugby sevens team and I got absolutely demolished by all the Aussies <laughs> and Kiwis in the team. Um, <laughs> and okay. um, I suppose that comparatively to Hong Kong, I suppose with the school there was an infrastructure. So I worked in Hong Kong so like the, sort of the second or third year of my career. Mm-hmm. I was just coming out of university. And... Um, yeah, the Hong Kong experience is probably more more isolating in that respect. Because mm. um, yes, there was your sort of work colleagues, but then you're starting from scratch, pretty much. Yeah. And there was probably there was more with well, the school was far more of a community around that, and there was sort of four of us, yeah, gap, gap yeah. students who are the same age and doing. So you had thing. that community. Yeah. But in Hong Kong, you didn't have a community. You had to sort of build it. I had to build it. Yeah. 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 And that's challenging. That's only why I was there for a year. Yeah. <laughs> um, Did you think you did build a community or not? Oh, I had a nice sort of core of friends. But um, mm. yeah, it, mm. it was a great, that in itself was a great experience. But it was a tough yeah, experience. Yeah, very tough. Very, so very why tough. was it tough? Well, just because um, they go from a place where you've, you know, got lots of friends and family around to, mm. to not was, well, actually a few people have said to me subsequently, not even having this initial element of this conversation, just saying, all right, and I worked in Hong Kong, and they were like, oh, wow, that's brave. And it's nothing, and it sounds, mm. I find really silly to say, mm. to say but it's, um, but in hindsight, I felt like it, it, it was. It is brave. But it's a, mm. a great experience to go through. Something we've discussed in the past is that by working abroad, it definitely gives you an edge, not only when you're out there, mm. but also when you come back as well, because you've got the international experience. And um, I think the brave... I think sometimes when people say, you think, we automatically think they're saying, oh, you're brave to live in Hong Kong. But, but, but it's got an M&S, a Pizza <laughs> Express, but what do you want? But really, they're probably, you know, really, it's, it's not that that's the brave part. It's like you said, because, you know, it's, it's a you know, sophisticated um, city. Mm. Um, it's it's not that the brave the brave part is leaving your community, mm. your your people that you've been with all your life that your support net. That's what it is. You don't have your support net there in the country, mm. so you've got to sort of create that again. Yeah, and yeah. that's. But then that I think, because I I. Went and lived in London for a couple of years. I lived in, and then I went back later on. But um, when I first went, I had nothing, no money. And, and, you know, I thought this would be as easy peasy because it's the same language. They're, you know, they look like me, like, you know, I thought. 
Um, but, <laughs> but it was completely different. I didn't get treated like that. I didn't have my community. I didn't, I didn't fit in as such. Um, and I, you know, I struggled to make the money I needed to make and live where I live, how I used to live. And, or, you know, you never really live how you used to live if you come from Sydney to London. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's, um, but the benefit, which is what would happen to you as well, is the benefit is you learn what you're capable of. You learn that you're capable of standing on your own two feet and doing what it takes to survive wherever you are. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, wow, it's like I was in London. Wow. <laughs> it's like it's not that challenging. It's not like I, I went and stayed in Sao Paulo, <laughs> you know. But but the same sort of thing, right? You still, it's not um, even about the country. It's about walking away from having that safety net mm. and doing it on your own. And the loneliness, I think, is part of the challenge is because you don't really know people. You meet people and they become your friends. But the people that you honestly trust and you know will be there to pick you up, they're not there with you. Yeah. So that makes it hard for you. But then the strength it gives you as a young person, I think, is phenomenal. Because mm. then when you come back, then you're, you've got an extra layer of confidence. You know? Yes, but, and it's, it gives you a definite appreciation for certain things. Be it missing fish and chips to, you know... <laughs> <laughs> or no, for your friends and loved ones, really, to be serious. But, it, but it's true. But you don't realise how good you've got it until you leave it. There's a great song by <laughs> Gregory Porter called Brown Grass. Yeah. It's all about that. <laughs> it's so true. Like, I didn't really, you know, I didn't think that much of Sydney until I went and lived in London. That I was like, Jesus, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sydney is the most beautiful, you know. Yeah. I really didn't even necessarily know the beauty of Sydney until I left it bizarrely mm. bizarrely mm. now I and like you said and then you come back and you appreciate what you've got mm. but you have also learned a lot about yourself mm. what do you think were the main things you learned about yourself well I suppose I'm respectful of other cultures but until you actually go to those places um, mm. it's it's hard to those experiences are very different, I think. It gives you better understanding. It's little, it's, it's even as simple as trying to learn a language. Yeah. Like before I ever tried to learn Italian, you know, you sort of, if, we, if, if we'd hear Italians speaking here and they'd, they'd, you know, add extra words in or, ex, you know, and you're thinking, why are they speaking like that? And yeah. then when you start to learn another language, you're like, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I completely understand now. And then you also, it increases your respect for, Definitely. well, these people can speak three languages, you know. <laughs> it's, yeah, and that's a very good comparison yeah. as well, like, until mm. to have an understanding of why people do certain things in a certain way. Mm. Um, can you yes. do when, when, until you go, say, go to that place and see what, how they've been brought up and, and why? Yeah, the way their grammar works is yeah. why they add in those, uh, yeah. you know, like all those extra words, right? Yeah. Um, and I think also, like I used to, you know, I, I had teams that travelled overseas a lot. Mm. Um, and I'd always say to them, take a day, 
like what your boss was saying, I'd say take a day and go, I don't care, go to a cafe, sit down, yeah. observe the people. <clears throat> Definitely. Yeah, I think if you, um, yeah, you've got to sort of understand the culture a bit better and it's challenging. Mm. It's challenging. It's like you don't necessarily agree with it or like it or, or, or maybe you do agree with it and then that challenges your belief on your culture, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's a healthy thing. Really yes. I think, yeah, um, and the day traveling is very exciting. And maybe you're going back to saying what you're motivated by. I mean, I'll often you know, say with the university group we were, we were involved with, and mm. working towards tours was always a really good benchmark because mm. it was exciting and the people would also work towards you to that goal in order to try and make it mm. happen. And it's a, it's a marker of, I think at least a marker of success in some ways if you can fulfill something like that. Um, exactly. And, and and it's what I'm taking to the role I'm doing now, you know, doing the most ambitious and crazy projects, but if you can make it happen, it's so fulfilling and rewarding and exciting. Um, but then also is in many ways, before a lot of the trips I go on, I often feel a sense of like, oh, can I really be bothered? Because it's, it's a big effort. Oh, once, but... You never feel that in the beginning. It's only once you've been traveling a lot. Yeah, but then within like less than a day, it's you're in the flow and you're ready to go. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. exciting and because it reminds actually, you straight away why you do it. When you're in a job where you travel a lot, it's actually hard work. Mm. Exactly. It's, it, it is hard work and it's tiring and, and all the rest of it and challenging. But you're right once you're there. But um, let's unpick it a bit more. What do, what do we actually love about it? What, you know... Well, again, it's a, it's a privilege to be able to go in all these parts of the world. And mm. I've been very lucky now. I've been to Sydney three times. I mean, mm. that's amazing. But I never thought I'd ever get here. <laughs> exactly. But do you think it's a... Uh, because I was trying to think about it. What do I love? And I think it's... For me, I love different cultures. I love hearing about the way, the way it works. I remember the first time I went to China... Um, and one of my staff that went with me, he, he had worked for in China teaching English for a year. Mm -hmm. So he knew it pretty well and he got a guide to come with us. And so she was telling us all sorts of things. And it was, that's the culture that I, part that I was really interested in. It's just little things like, I love when Chinese say things like, um, no, you Westerners eat a lot of meat, so you need cold drinks to cool your body because oh, the right. meat is warms your body okay whereas the chinese eat a lot of vegetables so they drink because they'll drink just hot water yeah you know a couple and we're like what the where's your tea bag you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean and and so you learn things like that or you know all sorts of cultural things that you can learn from different countries mm -hmm. and for me i find that fascinating i just find it really interesting like the people you know, I'm a bit of a philosopher, so that's why for me, <laughs> it does it does let you really sort of get inside and understand people better, people yeah. from everywhere, and what their life is really like, and therefore why they are who they are, and you know. Mm. It's all. I would also say not just about the people; it's the places you go to. For example, Washington. Mm. Um, I'm not American. No. But when I went to the Lincoln Memorial, mm. I felt emotional. Yeah, wow. And it's because it's such an awe-inspiring monument. 
Mm. It's huge, and it's mm. and it's the, the words that are depicted around it is from sort of place of just you know that's mm. quite well a cold country that they're extremely passionate about. And, yeah. Um, and the morals that are put in place you can have are yeah are um, important and um, come from a good place, and it's just yeah a really. I think the whole, in many ways, the whole city is like a, a massive memorial. Yeah, it is in a way, isn't it? And so it evokes those emotions. Probably it's designed that way for a certain. But even as I say, not being American or from that culture, I still felt yeah. that. And you can read about a place, mm. but until you go there, you don't oh, know. absolutely. Um, and I sort of have this rule that you got to be in a place for more than four days before you really can judge it. Right. You know, I think people go into a city for three days or something and go, oh, I hated that city or whatever. You didn't really get to know it. People say a lot about Bangkok. People yeah. hate Bangkok. Yeah. And and it's often en route to Chiang Mai and North. I think Phuket that's because of the ping pong balls. And wow. <laughs> that's one of its most redeeming features. Yeah. <laughs> but I can understand why people, that, but you, you know... It's, it's a pretty cool place. Or even people yeah. say Hong Kong, but the city of Hong Kong is oh, like Kong. such a small part of it. You can, I went surfing, you go on the beach, you can do so many yeah. amazing, amazing walks. It's, and that's and actually I, the majority of Hong exactly. Kong. Exactly. And I agree, actually, on Hong Kong. I mean, the first time I was only there for two days or something, I didn't like it at all. I was sort of on the 25th floor and I looked out or across at another building on the 25th floor and it didn't even sort of have windows or something and... People were living like in like slum type. In, in I don't know where it was. Obviously, this is before I had any money. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, what the? Like, it just my view of it. But then the more I went, the mm. more I really mm. got to know that the city and I mm. find it amazing, you know. Mm. It's sort of every time I land there, I'm like, this place mm. is cool. There's something about it. I mean, I'm mindful that people who are listening and thinking, obviously, we're extremely privileged to be able to go on to all these places. And that's... Yeah, exactly. And But that's hard work, to be honest. I didn't travel till for a long time, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's hard work. You work... But everyone's different, right? I think if travel is great, a great incentive. Um, my view's always been I work so I can travel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I, I'm less interested in getting things and owning things than I am in experiences. Yeah. I think something you told me, or with education, at least, is that's mm. one thing people can't take away from you. Yeah. Equally, experiences is mm. something people can never take away from you. Yeah. But I, materialistic things can be taken away. Exactly. I had a moment similar to yours with Lincoln Memorial in, um, in St. Peter's. Oh, wow. In yeah. the Vatican. And I'm n- not religious at all, but I walked in there... And I just walked in there like, hmm, you know, pretty casual. Like, I'm going to go have a look at this. What, is, what have we got here? And I walked in and I just I just had tears coming down my face. It just yeah. hit me. I just had this, I think for me, I was just like, I, sometimes I get so impressed with what man can create. Mm. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? What we've been able to create and that I just, and then I sort of, even I, weirdly I say I'm not religious, then I thank God that no one's bombed it. I thank God yeah. that it still exists, that we can see this beauty that we're able to create. Mm. My God, you know, it's just like, wow. So it's it's exactly that. You're sort of like, why, why am I? <laughs> yeah. It's some, and it's different for everyone. Different things touch people. It's but, not something which is truly awesome. Which yeah, is just exactly. I mean, exactly. Just, yeah. 
That's so true. Truly awesome. Not like a reality TV show. <laughs> <or something. laughs> yeah. But I think also um, when it comes to the, the one thing I want to talk to you about, the last thing I want to talk to you about quickly is leadership. Mm-hmm. Because I met you when you were 20, right? I think yeah, ni- 19. 19. 19. 19. <laughs> a whippersnapper. 19. And, and maybe, maybe it's my memory, I don't know. Yeah, 10 years ago. But I sort of, I think you're the same man that you were then at 19. I'm still a boy then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as in your whole approach, um, your whole approach to what you want to achieve and how you want to achieve it and how you can bring other people on board with you. Like, I like to think I'm a very good leader. I've... Oh, I had a good mentor. <laughs> the leadership is something that's been a part of me since I was a little kid. I feel like, you know, I used to cycle down the road in Dubbo where I grew up in the country town and people were behind me. <laughs> you know, I was like leading the kids around or maybe it's because I was the oldest sister or something. But I, I sort of, it was in me. Mm. And I've got a lot of interest in other people, so... That sort of works for me, leadership. But for you, you had it at a young age. Like, you, you didn't even realise that you had that, I think. I think you tell us, you tell it to me how you see your leadership, how it formed. Well, from what I saw was you had a goal in mind and you would do what it would take to get to that goal. <laughs> but at the same time, you... You learnt along the way how to bring people with you, how to make sure, you know, you don't have the stray sheep who fall mm. off at the end. Mm. However, you know, like I'm using that analogy, like the sheepdog herding, because that's sort of an integrator sort of leader type of role in a way. They, they, you know, make sure everyone's going in the same direction. And if someone falls off, they bring them back in if they can, you know. Mm. Tell me about well, I think where I, that came from. Well, I think when you first met me, I was, I was, I don't know, in hindsight, I feel I was um, quite a tyrant. And, yes, uh, <laughs> you, he was a tyrant. <laughs> but then, uh, in, in that sort of was the second or third year of the group, there was a couple of guys who came in who just, mess run all the time but I just always saw the funny side and I couldn't help it and just made me have a bit more perspective and relax a lot more and I even went on to a, an arts leadership course only a couple of years ago mm. and someone there who's uh, she's working with the BBC Proms and something which stuck with all of us from that cohort they were on that course mm-hmm. was just she said it's not A&E and just having perspective. It's not what? Not A&E. A&E. Um, no one's dying. A&E. Tell them what A&E uh, is for the Aussies. Accident and emergency. Um, yes. Would, I don't know what it's we It's not an emergency. We just call it emergency. The emergency, yeah. So mm. Mm. it's having that perspective. And yeah. I think particularly in the arts, you're, you're so passionate about what you do because mm. you love the finished product and that sort of drives you and that mm. keeps you going and then just having a perspective saying actually you know, no one's dying and just being more I suppose that I feel now I'm hopefully <laughs> more relaxed in my a- approach and like and ho- or hopefully also give people more autonomy because 
that's also how, how I would like to be managed as well. Exactly. So I think, I think the first and foremost, the most important thing to me is respect mm-hmm. between um, individuals, mm-hmm. no matter what position they are. I mean, it was, I told you earlier about Tim Minchin, who gave advice, he got an honorary degree and gave advice to his fellow graduates and said that he judges people as walked away for some massive major deals by how that individual react, integrates with a, a waiter. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah. you know, if you can't give people respect at any level, then I think that's not a particularly nice quality. No, you have to, if you don't give respect, you don't get it. Is Yeah, absolutely, that's it? it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think, going back to you describing yourself as a tyrant, if I had thought you were a tyrant, I would have slapped you down. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there were times when I'm like, feed them, Henry. They need some food. <laughs> Give them a break. But, but it's, I, think, I, don't, I think if you had have heard all that advice right in the beginning, it wouldn't have helped you. No. So I don't think it's advice. I think it's experience. Yeah. And I think people underestimate experience. Yeah. They absolutely underestimate experience. They think knowledge is more important. But you'd already had two years, mm. right? And you'd seen what you could do. You'd seen how you could bring them together and how you, the performances could get better and better and better. And, mm. you know, and that people would show up. You knew you had this group that would show up and do what they needed to do. Mm. So you'd already seen that you could lead. So then you can relax a little bit because you know you've done it already right so then you can go okay i know i've got this because a lot leadership's more like when you go into when i went to the course at harvard it's about me Uh, it's about me understanding me so i'm authentic i I am who i am right you can't be a good leader if you're not authentic donald trump (laughs) Um, (laughs) but you know you can't be you have to be who you really are, otherwise mm. it doesn't work. And you were always authentic. You were who you were. Um, and I think you have to, it's, it's all about learning who you are. And the more confident you get in yourself and your leadership abilities, then the better you get as a leader. Mm-hmm. Because then you realize, well, when I used to say to them, just do this, just do this, or, you know, like I'm just giving an example, but the tyrant side, mm. you know. Well, maybe there's, maybe tyrants are similar to being driven and people recognize yeah. that drive and go yeah. with that ambition and follow that. I think it's important to have a clear vision and people get on, get on board with that. Absolutely. Leadership's and, all about having a clear vision. And going on what you were saying about what you learned about in Harvard, it's mm. knowing your and being very clear-minded in your values and that clarity of vision and that clarity of how you want things to necessarily be delivered in a, in a certain way yeah. in a respectful environment, I think. And to continue awesome. to learn. Because yeah. I sound like a wanker saying I went to Harvard to do leadership, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it can come across like that. And absolutely, I want to keep using that. It's one of my goals to go there, even though I only went for exec education. Yeah. But... I had been a leader. I had, when I went there for that course, I had already led teams of 60 people, 36 people, 25 people. I had mm, led mm. for about 10 years. In theory, I didn't need to go and do it. Mm. But what makes you a better leader is that you're open to learn, continue to learn. 
that you don't think that you know at all. Well, Kofi Annan says um, you're never too young to lead and you're never too old to learn. Yes, exactly. That's a very good quote. Exactly. I agree with that. And But that's the thing is to continue to learn because a lot of people want to be leaders. Leadership is a hot topic. You know, the fact that they have, you know, master's degrees in leadership and things like that. Mm. People think that they can, okay, I just want to be a leader, but they don't really know what it means. It actually means you have to work harder than anyone else. Mm. <laughs> In a way, all the responsibilities on you. All the responsibilities on you, and you've got to make sure every single person in that group does their job as well. But the benefit is what you what you saw is when it works, mm. when yeah. it all comes together. Yeah. But the challenges are when they don't want to do it. <laughs> True. Well, they want to eat pizza, and you said they're not allowed to have cheese. <laughs> definitely not my style <laughs> <laughs> but you enjoy that part yeah you enjoy that part well I think it was the first experience I had was when I was at my secondary school and I was entrusted to run the big band from mm. sort of like, I think I was 15 or 16 mm. and there were people you know from like 13 to 18 there whatever and um so there were people, some people older than you? Yeah, yeah. And similarly, like, we had, like, these house-sicking competitions and mm. I was, yeah, 15 trying to tell these, you know, I was a bloke whose voice had probably only just broken and these 18-year-olds with hair sprouting all over the place who were twice my size and had the time to sing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And maybe that was quite a useful um, Absolutely. training ground for that respect. That sort of thing is very useful. And you find that in your career. In my career, I had to, somebody who you know, was more experienced than me. They, I had to then manage them. Mm. This is when I was in finance, and you know. And you you got to then work out how you do that in a respectful way. Mm. So it's they're never going to be happy with it, but how you get the job done anyhow and, and try and bring them on board, they're big challenges yeah. as you go through your career. Well, someone said to me, never be, am I remembering you, never be afraid to... <laughs> take on someone that's better than you. Oh, well, that's 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 a smart leader. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people that don't do that. Yeah, exactly. And that's because they're scared. But yeah, absolutely, you've got to you have... surround yourself with the best possible people and yeah. learn from them and reciprocate. Yeah, exactly. So, so future. Go down the future for me um, with music and leadership combine those the future of for you for me for you personally um how do you mean sorry i'm not quite sure what are you what are you seeing is your future in in your sector ah my sector yeah um well some things which i'm quite proud of at the moment with the company i work for is that we've set up a foundation to increase diversity and inclusivity within the arts mm-hmm. um, particularly within classical music but people on the stage mm. and the people working behind the scenes aren't particularly diverse so we partner with two organisations one to have interns paid interns within our company that are working in the arts who are from black and ethnic minorities mm-hmm. um, many of you have got full time roles in the organisation as well which is great mm-hmm. um, and equally working with local our local music education hub 
So when our artists are traveling through um, performing in London, they'll go and these are like world leading artists will go and deliver workshops to those kids. And so I think the I hope that at least from a classical music perspective, the it will be far more diverse, which also I think will inspire some amazingly creative mm. um, artistic outputs as well, mm, exactly. um, and be more reflective of our societies, because you know our society is not we're safe we're almost like 95 percent white yeah yeah it's just it's not what it is no exactly um, and for an orchestra to also continue mm. on its current basis it has to be reflective of the society that it's in i mean london's privilege it has five major symphony orchestras yeah in the u.s it has one major symphony orchestra mm. in each city mm. um and the challenge is to reflect that city and do you think um is classical music growing or shrinking? To the audience. Yeah. I think it's growing. That's good. Um, they've in the UK they've just set up a new radio station of classical music called Scala Radio. Mm-hmm. Now that the classical music is defined in a very broad sense. That's mm-hmm. everything from even they've even played Les Mis, um, or they'll play music for film. And a lot of my colleagues be quite snobby at that, but actually I think it's fantastic. I think it's great that it's the fact that these, you have a lot of say orchestras perform with film and live mm. with live orchestra, and mm. that could be people's first exposure to an orchestral concert. And a concert hall can be extremely imposing. The etiquette, what you should and shouldn't wear, or the, you know, mm. or, or do or say, or, mm. um, but to have I know a, I was in one the other day. With you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thinking, when am I allowed to clap? Yeah, yeah. I don't know when do I clap. No, I sit here and don't clap till someone else claps. And, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So it's and you learn, <laughs> yeah. And I think there are lots more initiatives of that in mind. Also, with my sector, I think um, climate change is a big thing. So we just talked a lot about travel and the yeah. amazing benefits that brings. Yeah. But uh, so working international touring and say touring like a hundred piece symphony orchestra, mm. how sustainable is that going forward? And I, I think what we've both discussed, or certainly I certainly believe, is the value of of international cultural exchange mm. um, the benefits that, that that brings not just for Absolutely. musicians touring but for the audiences out there mm. Um, mm. and I don't think the answer is to stop that but it's to I think we've as a, as a sector are extremely creative extremely di- dynamic mm. but let's harness that and think practically about think how we can ways. go about it yeah. it's interesting I did a, I did a case study um, when I was doing some course and it was about I think it was about the Met in New York mm-hmm. and it was really talking about how they can gain more members was this the museum or the opera or the opera okay because um, all their all their members and this could be the same for on the classical side all their members were really old yeah right very old and young ones weren't coming in yeah right so this was the challenge and what they did was that you know you've seen it they've put operas in cinemas and you know mm-hmm. so they tried to expand the audience that way yeah but what they and my instinct was that that wasn't the right way to do it mm-hmm. that was my instinct because i thought you've got to first of all you've got to get me interested mm-hmm. right how do you get me interested and then you can expand <coughs> it but they're not getting a new audience interested so they um they, they they just had the same sort of people that were going to the mm. cinema as mm. who went to, went to the concert. Right. Yeah. Whereas I was sort of thinking, 
you know, I was like, get Josh Groban or bring Beyonce in. You know what I mean? Do something. Then you'll bring a young audience in and open their mind to yeah. something new. Then you're expanding your audience. You've got to sort of think what's going to draw them mm. there. It's well, so two things on that. One is mm. that um, I think there's, there's great there's lots of initiatives about trying to expand classical music audience, and I think mm. that's very credible. But mm. I think what equally what my colleagues have to accept is that classical music is always going to be a minority interest, mm. and that's a fact. Unless perhaps there is a huge investment in, as I think we talked about earlier, um, music education and allowing people to have instrument provision and music provision, and then allowing these to be to be accessible, hmm. and then have that opportunity. Um, but until that happens, it will always be a minority, minority interest, um, because there's an element of also being nostalgia. You go and see your best bands because hmm. it reminds you of a certain moment, and it hmm. feels very poignant. And mm. present to you, mm. um, and that for a lot of people, that's how they resonate with classical music. But um, well, they grow up with it. Exactly. Yeah. So that's yeah. what has to change. You have to get to them younger. Yeah. Or, Definitely. Or something. Um, but also about the audience isn't dying. Uh, the members dying out. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a very it happens. It's a you know yeah. important point worldwide. But um, in fact, there was I went to a talk a few years ago from the guy who runs the Sydney theatre company mm-hmm. and he was talking about audience um, mm-hmm. development there's one thing about having facilitators for example having grandparents are called facilitators because they can bring like grandchildren out mm. to the, the show so that's quite important thing to do but also he said he's not worried that people between the ages of 30 and 55 say aren't coming to their shows because they're bringing up children mm-hmm. and so they find that there's a great audience up until the age of 30 or so Mm-hmm. And they have under 30 schemes. Mm-hmm. And then those same people will be coming back later on in life once they actually have free time. And that's why the classical music or the arts audiences are Quite often old. seen as old. It's because they have the time to be going out. Yes. Oh, that's, very, that's a very good so point. So you're less disparaging about, about the current climate of the arts and audiences. I think that's a very good point. It's also... we. When, when when you're younger, you look at older people and you think they're, they're doing daggy things, like an Aussie would say, like, I don't know, or like they're gardening or they're, um, or they're going to classical concerts or something like that, or, mm. you know, like they're sort of like, not that, not that that's daggy, you know what I mean, but other people look at it and go, oh, yeah, well, you know, I don't do things like that. Mm. That's for old people. Mm. But what I've realised is, as I get older, I've done all these other things. So all of a sudden I'm like in a classical concert. I've never been in one before. I want to try something new. Mm. And sometimes I think there's that element of they've done all these other things as well. Yeah. So what is new that I can, I can see and, you know, mm-hmm. bring into my life if I enjoy it. So that's a very good point that they will come back. So they're not worried about that. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. I like that. All right. We've been talking for a while, so we might finish here. But <laughs> we've got a couple of other things to do. Oh, blimey. Here we go. So I've got to edit. And I will edit. But I think um, we didn't talk about marriage. We were going to talk about marriage. Oh, we've done my two topics. <laughs> <laughs> 
There's nothing to talk about. I'll talk to you about marriage in 10 years. Yeah. When you've been married for a while. <laughs>